in the poem. In the poem, The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats, he wrote, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Yeats wrote that poem in 1919, 100 years ago, a year after the end of World War I, a war in which an estimated 20, people, 20 million people died, a war in which 20 million others were casualties. In an era of, uh, let's say, an era of, of uncertainty and ambiguity, uh, during that era, Yeats wondered what new world would emerge out of that terrible catastrophe. Now, the Gospel according to Matthew was written approximately 10 to 20 years after a war known as the Jewish Revolt, which occurred in ancient Israel from 66 to 70 AD. It included the siege of Masada and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans. And Matthew, using the resources available to him and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he composed his version of the good news of Jesus Christ in order to help the church know who Jesus was, how Jesus fit into the history of ancient Israel, and what he meant in the light of a new era of history, one that did not include the temple at the center of ancient Israel's religious life. Now Matthew may have felt and understood the feelings that Yates expressed. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The best, like all conviction, while the worst, are full of passionate intensity. And so with that feeling, he looked back to the past, to one who was full of passionate intensity, but was one of the best. And that person is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Looking back 30 or 40 years before the Jewish revolt, Matthew tells us, in those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, wearing clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist appears on the second Sunday of Advent every year. As a popular meme going around today says, Happy Advent, you brood of vipers. That appears every year now as well. But John's clothes and diet identify him uh, not as a civilized person from the city or from the agricultural regions of Judea, but they identify him as a man from beyond the edges of civilization and society. He is a man from the wilderness. The wilderness in Hebrew experience and thought was an area which was desolate and deserted. It was considered a dangerous place beyond the limits of civilization where, where bandits and wild animals roamed. It was a place generally to be avoided. But people from all over were going to John. People from Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the region along the Jordan, meaning people from 20 miles away and further were overcoming their fear of the wilderness and going out to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And John's baptism was one of repentance. Those who went down into the waters of the Jordan River with John had decided to repent. Literally, they had decided to turn and face a new direction towards the oncoming kingdom of heaven because they were expecting something new to happen. That the Lord, the God, 
would soon act decisively on behalf of his people, Israel, and establish a kingdom of justice and peace. And this event, this big overall event, would, would involve repetition or repeating events from ancient Israel's past, the stories of the Old Testament. God would reenact what had happened before. So there would be a new exodus as there was a old exodus. There would be a new Passover, a new journey through the wilderness, and a new entry into the promised land by crossing the river Jordan, just as the ancient people, ancient Hebrews had done. And so John's baptism symbolically uh, encapsulates all of those events. You know, those who went out to him journeyed through the wilderness. They were submerged in the waters of the river Jordan. They returned to Jerusalem, the promised land. As people ready for the Lord's arrival, they were ready for a new age to begin. Now, some religious leaders and thinkers of our own day think we are on the cusp of something new, a new age. Folks like Brian McLaren, Phyllis Tickle, Rachel Held Evans of Blessed Memory, they all thought and wrote about what they called an emerging church. Uh, Rob Bell, Nadia Boltz-Weber, our own Bishop Doyle have experimented with new ways of doing church. But what's happening, perhaps, is going beyond all of that. Uh, Earlier this year, Dr. Serene Jones, she's the Dean of the Union Theological Seminary located in New York City, uh, near the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, a seminary in which some of the great theologians of the 20th century taught, uh, Paul Tillich, Reinhold Niebuhr, folks like that. But Dr. Serene Jones said in an interview this last spring, she said, Christianity is at something of a turning point. But I think this questioning and this reaching is even bigger than Christianity. It reaches into other religious traditions. It's a spiritual crisis. And many non-religious people feel it too. She says, we need a new way entirely to think about what it means to be a human being and what the purpose of our lives is. And for me, for me, she says, this moment feels apocalyptic, as if something new is struggling to be born. In the midst of that interview, she talks about the things that we are all wrestling with one way or another, like violence and oppression and things like that. So what is new being born out of those experiences? And perhaps maybe we feel something like that too in our own lives in our own time, that something new is struggling to be born. Maybe we feel it in our lives. Maybe we feel that, like the gyres are widening, that things feel like they are falling apart, that the center is not holding. And that causes us some anxiety. It causes us to be uneasy. Now, that wouldn't be unusual. That would be expected. Yeats, when he wrote his poem back in 1919, was worried about what would emerge out of the wreck of civilization after World War I. And at the end of the poem, he says, Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Yeats was worried. But he wasn't the only one. A few years later, T.S. Eliot wrote his poem, The Wasteland, And Ernest Hemingway called the generation that fought and survived the war the lost generation. But John's message today is a message of hope. Even though he does use apocalyptic language, he does expect something new to be born. 
He says that the, the axe is lying at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Nevertheless, his message is still one of hope, because he looks forward to and proclaims that there is one more powerful than him who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And even though he describes Jesus as one who will separate the wheat from the chaff and burn that chaff in unquenchable fire, we know that Jesus' ministry was actually characterized by giving sight to the blind, healing the lepers and the lame, raising the dead, and bringing good news to the poor. And what this means is that the repentance and good works that through John calls us to is a response to God's grace and mercy rather than fear of God's judgment. John the Baptist points to a force within creation that is greater than the powers of chaos and destruction that seek to bring it down, a force working to bring everything back to center. Now I'm going to use what I thought might be a good metaphor, I don't know, but I'm going to talk about an extension cord I have. For some reason, concerning this, I thought of this extension cord that I really don't like. It's one of those long orange extension cords, about 50 feet long. Anybody have one of those? Yeah. All right. And I use it when I edge the yard. And it easily disconnects from the electric edger, and through the years, it has become wavy. You know, so it's not like smooth, it's wavy, and it really gets really tangled easily. It's like a pair of headphones. And so I spend a lot of time plugging it back in and hitch, pulling it because it gets easily caught on the sides of the house. And the only thing I like about it is the satisfaction I get when I begin to coil it up, you know, loop after loop. You know, so I'm hauling it, pulling it, hauling it, and looping it, and looping it, and looping it until it's a nice round circle. That's what I think God is doing, something like that. God is doing something like that. God is at work in the world shaping and giving order to these strung out and tangled up fragments of our lives. God is untangling them and bringing them back into some sort of order. God has to do that fairly frequently, but that's what God does. And because of that, I think we can hear God, uh, John's message as a message of, as a message certainly of repentance, but also of mercy and grace. We can do, as I mentioned last week, or I talked about, uh, we, we, we must acknowledge the sometimes brutal facts of our lives and our existence, while at the same time holding hope that God will change those things. Because God is there out there before us. God is out there before us, making something new out of all of it. And with God is not some rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem, with God it's Christ our Savior, whom we will celebrate birth, his birth in a few weeks, but also we look forward to him coming as our ultimate Redeemer, bringing final order and completion to this creation that God has made. Amen.